MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill, and this is episode six of the nine-part series on the book Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us by Brian Kloss. I want to welcome our new listeners and subscribers that have joined us since our migration from Spotify. Thank you so much for your support. I will have the author, Brian Kloss, back for a final interview the first Sunday in March to wrap up this series, so stick around for that. Now, last week, we ended with the question about whether power actually corrupts, and the chapter we begin today talks about how we tend to over-amplify how much power corrupts. Part 7, Why It Appears That Power Corrupts, begins with Lord Acton and the Spanish Inquisition, which nobody expects. Klaas takes us through some of the atrocities, by the way, of the Spanish Inquisition, which I'm not going to go over here. Um, I Read them yourself. Content warning. It's not pretty. And an historian named Crichton that recorded all of the Spanish Inquisition history in sort of a nonchalant fashion because he believed history should be hands-off. It shouldn't be clouded by morality. Enter... John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton, 1st Baron Acton, 13th Marquess of Gropoli, who goes by Lord Acton. He saw Crichton's moral indifference as abdicating the responsibility of history to hold powerful men accountable for their abuses. And he wrote a letter to Crichton in 1887 that says, I cannot accept your canon that we are to judge Pope and King unlike other men with a favorable presumption that they did not wrong. And he ends with, quote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. So he coined that phrase. And he wasn't the first one with the idea. Way back in 1770, William Pitt the Elder told the House of Lords, quote, unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it. So this is a well-known concept. But is it true? Kloss says, maybe. But we view power through warped eyes. Some of that has to do with four phenomena, dirty hands, learning to be good at being bad, opportunity knocks, and being under the microscope. These four things skew our perception of how much power corrupts. So let's look at these four cognitive mistakes we tend to make. The first is dirty hands. And for this, Brian Kloss talks to former Thai Prime Minister Abhisit Vejajiva, and he was waiting for him in a cafe. And he sat there while he was there. He, there was only one other person there, somebody wearing a yellow T-shirt, sipping on some coffee. And so he texted the former prime minister to let him know, hey, I'm here. And then he got a text back saying, so am I. It was the guy in the T-shirt. They shook hands and Brian says, I wasn't expecting you to be wearing a T-shirt. And the prime minister said, I thought you'd be older. 
And Kloss notes here that that's the power delusion at work. <laughs> and Kloss thought to himself, I'm shaking the hand of a man who has been accused of mass murder. Now, when he was prime minister in early 2010, his opponents began to mobilize against him in the streets of Bangkok. Peaceful at first, but then they stormed the parliament and they were armed. And then the troops fired back and 26 people died. And that prompted the protesters to begin speaking of a civil war. The prime minister then ordered no-go zones and would assassinate people who entered them as protesting militias began lighting fires around the city, arsons. And uh, the government began this brutal crackdown that eventually led to the protesters surrendering, but not after 87 people were killed. 87. So the question becomes, had the prime minister not had the brutal crackdown, would the resulting civil war have caused more death and destruction? Almost certainly, but you can never know for sure. And that was the choice he faced. Kill a small number of terrorists or let hundreds of thousands of innocents uh, die in a bloody civil war. So these disturbing choices are made across the globe all the time. Jean-Paul Sartre speaks of impossible dilemmas in his play Dirty Hands. And most of us, we don't deal with this horrible moral transgression stuff, right? We, we elect others to make those repugnant choices. And Kloss says, this is not to absolve these grotesque acts of abuse, but it's to show that leaders must be held accountable for human rights abuses. Uh, and it's also worth remembering that people in power often have to take the lesser of two evil choices. Another example he gives is Abraham Lincoln. In order to pass the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery, he had to bribe holdouts in the House of Representatives. Congressman Thaddeus Stevens wrote, quote, The greatest measure of the 19th century was passed by corruption, aided and abetted by the purest man in America. Dirty hands for a much greater good. Quote, when we say power corrupts, we mean that power makes people worse than they previously were. Instead, much of the time, they just have to make worse decisions. The dirty hands problem is why we sometimes believe power has corrupted someone. Now, the next cognitive mistake besides the dirty hands thing is uh, people don't get more corrupt. They just get better at being bad. They learn. So let's say someone is 30% corrupt. And then once they're in power, they stay 30% corrupt. They just get better at being corrupt. So it seems they're becoming worse, but they're actually just learning. They're just lifelong learners. Klaus's example of this is a contributor to The Guardian that used to be a professional thief for a living named Eric Allison. He started stealing when he was a kid. One of his first jobs was stealing a coin jar from a neighbor when he was 11. But one of his lookouts spent his cut on some swimming flippers. And when asked where he got them, he turned in Eric. But that wasn't the last time he'd be burned by unreliable co-conspirators. He stole a gumball machine one time, and his partner was gallivanting around town with a mouthful of chewing gum. Eric went to juvie for that one. When he got out, he went right back to criming, stealing, but he got much smarter about it. He would vet his partners better, and he got into more lucrative, less dangerous crimes like check fraud. Eventually, he figured out if he targeted larger accounts that weren't often looked at, he could get more money with less risk. So he figured out a way to cash checks using banks in Gibraltar and Geneva, through a trusted intermediary that would take a cut. And he kept, his jobs kept getting bigger and bigger. In his last big job, he stole a million pounds from Barclays Bank, huge bank. He got caught for that and he spent seven years in prison. And he's now the prison correspondent for The Guardian. He says over the years, quote, I didn't become a worse person. I just got better at doing jobs. So sometimes it's not power corrupting. It's just the powerful getting better at being bad. The third cognitive mistake we tend to make when we overestimate how much power corrupts is opportunity. And this is pretty straightforward, right? Let's say we live in a world where every person behaves badly 10% of the time. 
So a person who lives in a rural area might find a wallet on the ground once a year. And a person living in a city might come across a lost wallet five times a year. Over 10 years, being bad 10% of the time, the rural guy pockets the money once in 10 years, and the city guy pockets the money five times. Does that make the city guy five times more corrupt than the country guy? Of course not. There's just more opportunity. Now, apply this concept to people in authority who face more situations in which they can hurt people than we do. They, they, that happens more often for people in power. Quote, when they make the wrong call, more people suffer. Does that mean that power uh, made them worse people? Or do they just appear to become worse because of that increase in opportunities and the magnification of the consequences? Often it's the latter. And that brings us to the fourth, the fourth mistake called under the microscope. Also pretty self-explanatory. And while Kloss does not mention Trump in this book, I'll mention him here. We often say, boy, if he didn't run for president, he might never have been investigated for all of his crimes. And that's because as leaders, people are under a microscope. When you look really hard for bad behavior, you're likely to find it. Kloss gives the Bernie Madoff example. How did he get away with bilking so many for so long? Well, first, no one looked closely because no one was complaining. And second, even when people tried to blow the whistle, investigators didn't look too closely because Madoff had established close friendships with many of the people that could destroy him. So the picture is beginning to come into focus. Quote, corruptible people are drawn to power. They're often better at getting it. We as humans drawn, are drawn to following the wrong leaders for irrational reasons linked to our Stone Age brains. Bad systems make everything worse. And now four phenomena, dirty hands, learning, opportunity, and scrutiny, make it seem that power makes people worse than they actually are. However, these four mitigating factors are only part of the story, Kloss continues. They don't fully explain away the corrosive effects of power. That's because, as we'll see, Lord Acton was right. Power does corrupt. All right, that's the end of part seven. We'll take a quick break, return with part eight. It's simply called Power Corrupts. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. All right. Welcome back. We are now on part eight, where we will get into all the studies that show power does corrupt and what kinds of limitations we have to consider when we read these studies. And there are definitely some limitations. We start on page 149 in the hardback edition with Kloss meeting Sheila Patel. And when he arrives and he was offered a glass of water, he declined. And if you don't know who Sheila Patel is, you'll soon learn why Brian Kloss declined that glass of water. In 1967, when she was 18, she left India to attend Montclair State University in New Jersey. She wanted to study fine art. She married a guy from Illinois. And in 1972, with the whole, you know, free love movement, they traveled to India in search of a guru and joined the ashram of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. His followers were known as the Rajneeshis, and their core tenets were free love and sexual liberation. They engaged in experimental therapies, including long group sex sessions, which, by the way, were later alleged to have involved violence and abuse. Another story. In 1980, 
Um, Sheila's husband died of Hodgkin's disease, and she ended up getting together with Bhagwan. And by 1981, a year later, she was his right-hand woman. She was tasked then with finding a place in America to build a utopia, a commune, and she found Big Muddy Ranch in Central Oregon. The locals were not into it, and in 1982, tensions began to run high. But the Rajneeshis had all kinds of money from the Hollywood elite that joined them and filled their coffers, and they decided to silence the locals by basically taking over the town. They won the local elections and took over Antelope City and the Antelope City City Council. And they changed the name of the town. And then they triple taxed the locals. And Sheila began to get a taste of power. She built an airport. She built a reservoir and a dam. She had private jets and helicopters purchased. She built a medical center. And with the help of all the free labor of the members, working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, built this utopia. And people learned quickly not to cross Sheila. And when asked about those who stood in her way, she said they haven't learned their lessons yet. Now, she developed a heavily armed peace force outfitted with semi-automatic weapons, peace force. And the locals figured, hey, you know, we got to shut this down. We got to try to get our, our town back. But we don't have the numbers here in the town, but we do in the county. And so in 1984, three inspectors from the county came out to the ranch, two of whom were opponents, didn't like this utopia. The other was sympathetic. At the end of the visit, a rep from the medical corporation she built offered them water, which they all drank. And the next morning, the two opposing inspectors became violently ill, but they did survive. And then, to avoid the county-level crackdown, she rigged the election by spiking local salad bars with salmonella typhimurium. Now, this was just a test run for the upcoming elections in November. All told, she poisoned about a 1,000 people. Many were hospitalized, and an infant almost died. Investigators found out what she wasn't, what she, okay, she, first of all, she was the master, mastermind behind the poisonings, but then they uncovered alternative plots that had yet to be tried. Apparently, Sheila had considered using salmonella typhi, a far deadlier poison. And there was also evidence she was trying to weaponize HIV, and they found a plot to assassinate a U.S. attorney. They caught her, she went to trial, she spent several years in prison, now she's out, and now Klaus was talking to her. That's why he turned down the glass of water. So he asked her if she thought power corrupted her. She said, my power was the power of love for Bhagwan and his people. Power was not corrupted from me. So is she, is, is she an example of a good person corrupted by power? For this, Klaus says we have to turn to the data and ask what power actually does to someone. And this section is called Horsepower Corrupts. And it's about a study conducted by a man named Keltner at UC Berkeley. One day while cycling to work, he was almost taken out by a black Mercedes. And he thought, why is it always the fancy cars that almost kill me? So he set up an experiment where one researcher hid in the bushes to note the makes and models of cars driving by. And then further down the road, another one would enter a crosswalk and see who stopped and see who sped through the pedestrian zone. Zero percent of drivers in beater cars like Yugos and Plymouths. Zero percent drove through the pedestrian zone, while almost 50 percent, 46.2 percent of expensive cars drove right through. Keltner's work shows that those with power tend to lose inhibitions and don't care as much about what others think about them. In 2016, Keltner wrote The Power Paradox, which argues that being a good person helps you get power, but you're corruptible once you get there. And that brings us to those limitations I mentioned at the beginning of the show, because sure, being good helps you get power in like a Fortune 500 company, right? And, and many of his findings, which he admits are biased by their sample populations, 
Because in modern psychology, there's two chronic issues that plague study samples, the people that you recruit to do the experiments. There's the replication crisis and the weird problem. Now, the replication crisis is what they ran into during that power pose study. They couldn't replicate it, and so they backed off of those findings. And then there's the weird problem. That's an acronym, WEIRD, Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democracies. Most study samples come from weird groups, like two out of three are college students. Still, the studies are worth exploring because the findings are robust. And even with these skews, they help us understand how power changes us. Maybe not how much because of the weird problem, but that it does. How it does, I should say. And there are four main ways researchers study how power changes behavior. The first is called structural manipulations, and that's experiments in which people make decisions that directly affect others. The second is the priming approach, and that's where a subject is assigned to one of two groups. Like maybe the first group, they're asked to write a short essay about a time they felt powerful. And then the other group, the control group, they're asked to write an essay about what they did last Tuesday, something banal. The idea here is to compare the power group to the people who have not been put in the power mindset. The third and fourth methods, Kloss says, are the least reliable. Uh, the third is the primed one. People are primed with power cues, like they'll have them do a word search puzzle that includes words like boss and authority. And then the fourth is, is having people assume power poses. We've talked about that. So what does the science suggest? One study, and there's a lot of studies in here, and they're great. And he, the way he sums them up is very succinct. One study shows that the more power someone has, the shittier they become. The more power they have, the shittier they become. And this, in this one, people were randomly assigned um, in a 2015 study to play the dictator game. And they were randomly assigned to one of three groups. In group one, the dictator had control of only one other person. And they could divide, divide a pot of money between themselves and the other person, either 60-40, 50-50, or 90-10. In the second group, the dictator had power over three people with those same split choices. And the third group was still three people, but they added a 96-4 split. Now, the results show that as the dictator with power over one person screwed the other person over 39% of the time. So the, the least amount of power, just one person, screwed them over 39% of the time. In the second group, with more power, three people, they screwed them over 61% of the time. And in the final group with the most power, they took the money and ran 78% of the time. And with an added twist, they measured testosterone levels and found that those with most power in the high power group that had high levels of testosterone were exceptionally likely to keep all the money. Another study with findings that were robust and replicable was one where people were given the role of either boss or underling, and then they played blackjack. Turns out the bosses were more likely to hit, take risks, because powerless people are less likely to take risks because they can't afford to lose. And then there's the added concept of illusory control, the, that feeling powerful doesn't just make you want to take risks. It actually gives you a false sense you can control those risks, when you, even if you clearly can't. I'm sure we can think of a couple people that have illusory control issues. <laughs> now, beyond these findings, there's a long list of studies that show gaining power tends to make people behave in worse ways. And the more power you get, the shittier you become. Uh, the powerful interrupt others more, they stereotype more, they use less moral reasoning when making decisions, and they're more judgmental about behaviors in others than they themselves exhibit. But there's another limitation besides the weird problem, and it's, it's that in these experiments, people know they're not actually powerful. They, they know it's an experiment. So we're stuck between two flawed methods, Klaus says. 
of testing whether power corrupts. The first, quote, which observes power in the real world, as with Sheila, is usually biased by self-selection effect. Sheila wanted power, she got it, and then it seems to have corrupted her. But it's impossible to tell if Sheila's personality or the cult system she found herself in were responsible for that. The second approach, using controlled experiments, can't take into account the power they have in these studies is an actual power. You can't measure that, knowing that your subject knows they're not really a boss or, you know, they're not really an underling. But despite the limitations, all the evidence points in one direction. Quote, becoming powerful makes you more selfish, reduces empathy, increases hypocrisy, and makes you more likely to commit abuse. Power does corrupt. But is that the tip of the iceberg thing? Are we fixating on the powerful people we can see and missing what's lurking beneath the surface, which is why corruptible people are drawn to power, why they're better at getting it, and how they exploit our Stone Age brains to convince us they deserve it? And here class wraps up part eight, noting that we've been focusing on how power can change the way we think, but we also need to consider how power changes us physically. And Kloss covers that in part nine, which we'll go over next week, along with part 10 called Attracting the Incorruptible. Part, part uh, nine is what power does to your body physically. All right, that is this episode. Also out today, a new episode of Muller She Wrote with my favorite guest, Peter Strzok. We're going to talk about what classified documents are and why this is important. And I'll be back on The Daily Beans tomorrow with Dana Goldberg. So until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. I've been A.G., and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter, and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.